Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. Welcome back to Empowered Leadership. Thank you for tuning in to this special second parter of my conversation with Doug Hunter, a marketing leader with over three decades of experience. Uh, if you haven't tuned into part one, I encourage you to give that a listen. If you have, welcome. And without further ado, let's dive in. I want to make a little bit of a pivot. We've talked yeah, a lot about it. leadership in the context of kind of larger organizations, mm -hmm. but today you're in a high growth startup and yep. I'd love to love to start with what was it like making that transition for you? You'd been at one company for 23 years, mm -hmm. inculcated in a one company's culture, yeah. and then you made a big transition to a totally different type of organization and culture. Right. What was that like? You know, it's interesting because there's things that are exactly the same and there's things that are completely different. You know, it's still a group of people working hard and people are people and you know what comes with people. You know, what we were doing you know, for example, as leading marketing business development, what we were putting together in terms of account-based marketing programs, content marketing programs, is all the same stuff that I did in the big company. But this is where the big difference is at a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the budget for the conference was $5,000, not a half million. The other thing is the lack of stability, but I don't mean this in terms of the financial stability, which is there too, but you're also trying, because the company is younger and you haven't been the market as long and the market is not as mature, you're trying to figure out what works. You know, we went through and we built this big account-based marketing program because we knew who our customers were. We knew where they were. Heck, we even had their email addresses and phone numbers. But it didn't work and I shut it down. And we pivoted over to conferences because when we could go have live conversations with people, we had tremendous traction. But it's pivot. And it was just continuously pivot, 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 pivot. And so yeah. it's trying to figure out we weren't taking plates of spaghetti and throwing them at the wall and seeing what stick. You know, it was a very systematic, you know, how do we get this up as fast as possible? How do we measure whether or not this is working fast as possible? And then how do we change? Because, you know, time is literally money. And when you're working off of investor money, you know, the bank account's going down. And so you need to figure things out as quickly as you can. So you learn how to do more hacks. How to test things quickly. I mean, I coached CEOs of a number of startups. And one big failure point that I often see in startups is that they're trying to move so quickly that they've got a good hunch right. of this will work. Then they run as quickly as they can to launch it, but they haven't done the work up front to really frame right. what's the hypothesis that I have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I need to test you said this, and I want to reaffirm it. What are the metrics I'm going to use yeah. to measure yeah. success mm -hmm. so yeah. that when we do the test, we mm -hmm. know what to learn from it and we're able to figure out, okay, did this fail because our hypothesis was wrong? And mm -hmm. you've got to do that, have a little bit of rigor around using the scientific method when you're a startup, I think, so that you're able to really test things, learn from them and move mm -hmm. on with confidence. And there is a balance because in a corporate sense, in a large corporate setting, you can take three to six months to go through a strategic process. In a startup, it might be three to six hours. 
it's a big shift. And, you know, it takes a lot of, I can imagine, courage to step away from a company after 23 years where, to your point, there's a lot more stability in a number of different respects. Mm-hmm. And to move into a high growth startup, which is the opposite of stable, you know, how did you prepare yourself for that type of transition? And what advice might you have for other leaders who are contemplating a big career transition like that? Okay. So my two bits of advice, I know yourself and know your bank account. Let me take the easy one first, just know your bank account. When you go to a situation like that, everyone goes into startup hoping it's going to be a unicorn and you can retire at a really young age. The data says that that's probably not happening, and you're going to have yet another period of unemployment while you go look for the next gig. And so, you know, and you're not going to get paid as much as you did at your last job. And so you need to understand, and this kind of gets back into knowing yourself, which is like my wife and I went through this exercise and said, what's the minimum that we can live on? With the type of life that we want, how low can we go? You know, mm-hmm. if you need to have 50, 100, 150K, whatever the number is to support your lifestyle, you know, you're not going to get that type of money with three people who are bootstrapping in a garage. You need to understand what your financial timeline looks like. And in terms of knowing yourself, this is interesting because when I go back through my career, a lot of my career has been building and creating stuff. You know, first job while I was still in college was with a contract manufacturing startup. And it was literally a job where you walk out and the boss goes, hey, here's 500 feet of empty floor space, build a quality apartment. Here's a thousand square feet of empty floor space, go build a, a quick response prototype group. You know, here's an office, build a manufacturing team. And even when I got to Lattice, it was a very dynamic environment, even though it was ultimately you know, a $500 million company. Because you know, my first assignment when I came in was, hey, go build the strategic planning team. Then it was, hey, go build the corporate marketing team. So I was always building and creating groups and teams. So to come here to Lattice and have, not Lattice, Arjuna, and to have them go, hey, you know, we need a marketing department, go. It was kind of old hat. So it wasn't, you know, I, again, not the same number of headcount, not the same size budget, but, you know, how do I build the exact same program 10 times smaller? And so for me, the environment is very consistent with what my career has looked like, because I've never been a person who has just stepped into an existing well-running organization, just had to turn the lights on and off. I've always been a builder, creator, or rebuilder. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that point about know yourself is so important. And I'll build on it and say, as as a founder myself, it's not just knowing yourself, it's having really exceptional self-management and self-growth skills. Like it's Mm -hmm. one thing to Mm -hmm. be aware, but my experience going through a big career transition from a Mm -hmm. corporate world to my own company was Mm -hmm. all of your gremlins, your limiting beliefs, your fears are going to come out to play Mm -hmm. because- Joining a startup is inherently risky, and we as people are, most of us, predisposed to avoid and mitigate risk. And so Mm -hmm. all those things that were protectors that we adopted in our life, narratives, stories, beliefs, will come out and try and protect us from taking Mm -hmm. a risk that might lead to failure. So you've got to learn how to coach yourself through those fears, to coach yourself through those limiting beliefs, because if you don't, they'll hold you back. They'll 
totally shape your perspective from one that feels empowered and positive to one that feels kind of disengaged and negative. And it'll often lead to a really poor experience for your team. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, building on self-awareness, you've got to have the self-management and the Mm self-growth capabilities as Mm -hmm. well. I think your bit about gremlins is important because as you face those fears, what should be happening is, is you face them, you overcome them. Obviously, Alexander, you're still in business. And hopefully what you're taking away from that is like, oh, I can do this. And the hope is, is that it's building confidence so that whatever you have to do next, whatever that, you know, the big, you know, we call them the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goals, whatever the next BHAG is for you, you're going to be better situated emotionally, mentally to go after it because you've successfully survived the last one. I mean, to use a very personal example here, it took me five years to leave Lattice because I had all these fears about looking for a job and surviving financially and, 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 and finally got to the point where I was willing to make the jump. I mean, you know, Hey, it's the start of a global pandemic and recession. Let's quit our job, you know, take a sabbatical best thing I ever did, but it took me a long time to get there. But, you know, as I'm facing another career transition here, I keep turning to my wife and saying, should I be more worried about this? Because I don't feel worried about this. And I think I don't feel worried about it because I went through it and I survived and I came through to the other side. And I think whether it's career transition, building a company or building a new department, or just even just taking a promotion and having a larger role, you'll survive it, you know, build the network of support that you need around yourself, but you'll get through it and you'll come out stronger. And it's usually worth it to have taken that step. Yeah. It's that mindset of inevitable success that I think allows people to persist through the Mm -hmm. challenge because Mm -hmm. You're not wondering, will this work? You have a mindset of this will work. It's just a matter of how I make it work. Yes. And if you have that mindset, you're able to really learn, grow, roll with the punches when they come because they will (laughs) and and trust that I can do this. Well, in having flexibility about what your definition of success is. Yes. Because... If you just go and say, hey, success is retiring early with $10 million in the bank, it's not a great definition of success. And, you know, I think success, you can aim for that and you should absolutely feel free to aim for that, but you should be willing to accept other definitions of success, which could be as simple as getting, you know, the, the experience that you have gained, the relationships you have built, the milestones that you have hit. There is more to life than your bank account. Yeah, I often, when I work with clients on early on in the coaching relationship, we'll always set, I always ask them, how do you define success in your life? And then we'll set Mm -hmm. goals Mm -hmm. for our work together. And I find that my clients who are the most fulfilled Mm -hmm. and the most engaged and have the most general sense of like happiness, satisfaction Mm -hmm. from life are the ones who have external goals that motivate them put in the work, keep going forward and help them to point their work in a clear focused direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But how they measure their success is based on things within their control. Like Mm -hmm. what was, you know, did Mm -hmm. I put in the work? Mm -hmm. Did I do my very best to add value today? Did I show up in a way that aligns with my values and -hmm. supported the Mm -hmm. people around me? You know, Mm -hmm. things about their sphere of control that Sure, that isn't your bank account, but if you do that stuff consistently, it should yield the external results, even if you don't know exactly what those results will do today. 
No, I think it's so important to focus on what you can control versus externalities, because there's so much that you can't control. It's like, can you honestly say, at the end of the day, I did the best that I could? It, which you know, which really comes down to, for example, it's integrity and character. It's you know, are you being the best person that you can be? Yeah, and celebrate it when you are. Yeah, the question I always use to start my day is, how can I add value today? And the mm-hmm. question I always use to close out and reflect on my day is, how did I add value today? Because it takes the focus off of me right. and puts the focus on being of service to others, which when you're mm-hmm. in a place of fear or mm-hmm. doing something risky or new, I found can be a very powerful strategy to quell the anxiety. But again, it's interesting there because you're being intentional about it. It's the intentionality. And I think there's just so mm-hmm. many things in life. You know, this isn't the first time intentionality has come into the conversation. Maybe this is one of the key takeaways for people is just you got to be intentional about stuff. I mean, because if you just go through life just drifting and reacting to whatever the last thing that happened to you is, you're always going to be drifting through life, reacting to the last thing that happened to you. But if you take even modest amounts of intentionality, like you were just describing about kind of you know, doing the start of the day goal setting, the end of the day evaluation, that's huge. Yeah, and intentionality is, I think, one of the easiest and the fastest paths to a sense of agency and control in our life. And when we have a sense of agency and control, that will help us to feel like we have power over the situation, and that can reduce stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. just that little shift in mindset Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. I'm a victim of circumstance, or I've just got to react to what's happening to, I can intentionally choose my experience and I have control over the way I show up, I think is the difference between somebody who's constantly in a place of like stress reaction Mm -hmm. and fighting fires and somebody who's able to navigate life with a lot of confidence and joy, which are the three words I love to talk about. (laughs) No, agency and control is an interesting concept because I'm thinking about it right now in terms of the pandemic. I think that was something where a lot of people's sense of agency and control was stripped away in that way. It's interesting when you start thinking about it because even from a management point of view, I think so many managers were really shaken because they're separated from their teams and you know, control is, they couldn't manage the way they used it. It's like everything was tossed up in the air and, you know, nothing was landing the way it used to be by and large, which I think is interesting to think about too, in terms of this whole debate about remote and hybrid in-office work. And I, I was thinking the other day about like, what is really the benefit of remote work? I mean, there's obvious things like, you know, shorter commutes on the start work time, but I think there's also a real sense of agency and control that you get at home that you don't get in the office. You know, I can wear what I want. Absolutely. Or, you know, or at least below what you can see on Zoom. You know, there's just there's a whole series of choices that you can make at home that you can't make in the office. And I wonder if some of the resistance to going back to the offices around that as well is that people just feel better at home than they do in a corporate office environment. I think that's a big part of it. There's mm-hmm. the logistics of commutes, childcare, which is Mm -hmm. astronomically expensive and cost prohibitive for some families. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, just building that routine back in your day. And then there's, you know, a sense of control over your environment. Mm -hmm. The average office is not designed for 
deep, meaningful work. It's open offices, people talking across each other, or you have to wear headphones, which Mm -hmm. doesn't work for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's just not an environment that's very conducive to meaningful, Mm -hmm. independent work. And I think until we address that, it's going to be really hard to get people back into an office and happy to do so. I think until we address the work environment, but also those very real barriers like childcare, the cost of a commute, the cost of parking, Mm -hmm. the safety Mm -hmm. if you're in a city like Portland, which continues to have a lot of crime issues. Yeah, These are very real barriers to bringing people back. And there's got to be a value to it. It's interesting hearing you talk about the office environment because- I toured one of my friends as COO at a music company on the other side of town. And I went and visited him in his offices and he gave me a tour. And what they had done is they let each group decide how they wanted their cubicles configured. So in the customer service area where everyone's interacting with a lot of other people, you may just want to like, you know, put your hand over the phone and shout to, you know, hey, Joe, how do I deal with this one? So also everyone's cubicles were facing each other. They were small. And the cubicle walls were really, really low. So everybody could clearly see everybody else. Then you went up to another department, I think it was IT, and they had six foot high cubicle walls. But what they had done is they built a bullpen. So within the department, there were no walls at all. There's just a wall around the department. And then you went to, I think it was like, you know, where the web developers were. And they were all in individual cubicles with six foot walls because they all wanted their own quiet space to do coding. And so... Really interesting way of giving people autonomy and control in their environment in the office by letting them design their own space. I think so often corporate says like, hey, you know, we're going six by six with four foot walls and it's gray. Enjoy. You know, and it's it's well, then you've run into the issue, though, of, you know, if you've got six foot high cubicle walls, do you have natural light coming in? I mean, it's pretty unhealthy what we know now, the science of natural light, it's pretty unhealthy for people to be in a dark or artificially lit space most of the day. I mean, that's a big contributor to uh, poor mental health outcomes for some people. So I really struggle to see a world in which we're designing offices that work better for people who aren't in location-dependent jobs than working in their own home environment is. So fascinating to hear you talk about the role of natural light. I read an article in the Times talking about, because you know we have, we have this housing shortage. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why can't we take all these empty office buildings and just convert them to homes? That's why. <laughs> and it, it, Yes, and light is one of the really, really yeah. big issues because yeah. they just have these massive floors, you got windows at the end, you know, and they typically, you know, you have the executive offices around the outside in the conference rooms and everyone sits in the cold, dark core in the middle. So you convert it to <laughs> apartments there's no windows and no one wants an apartment without windows. So there's one building in New York where they had literally, they bored a hole all the way down the middle of the building to get more light into the core. It's like, well, I certainly hope they do that for offices as well. Not just the apartments. Nobody wants an apartment like that. Nobody wants an office like that. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. It's like, that's not how people are meant to live. And I think in the arc of human evolution, that's where we're at today as a species, as we've, you know, we started at a place of being hunter gatherers, meeting our basic Mm -hmm. needs. You know, we started dividing and conquering labor, which allowed us to start doing things like art Mm -hmm. and things for enjoyment. And, you know, we've continued this evolution and now people are at a place where it's like, okay, I I want fulfillment in life. And I don't 
I don't necessarily want to spend a third of my life doing something that I dislike or being in an mm-hmm. environment that I dislike. Mm-hmm. And I think as leaders, we've got to reckon with that mm-hmm. and why not embrace it? Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I mean, I think I understand all the reasons people want, want people back in the offices. You mm-hmm. know, one is, and some of them are really valid, like building community. I think there's so many to our earlier conversation about stepping back from the day to day and giving yourself space to explore what if. Mm -hmm. I think if we do that, we can identify a lot of different ways to build community Mm -hmm. and foster innovation that don't require being in an office two or three days a week. Mm -hmm. It could be taking your office budget and using it for really meaningful quarterly offsites you know, that's just one example, but I think there are different ways organizations can get the same outcomes they're looking for that may be even Mm -hmm. more cost efficient Mm -hmm. and also more memorable and meaningful to your team. You know, but it's an interesting debate. I mean, I I talked about bringing my team in together annually, but I I think there's also, you hit this this thing with kids, which is quality time versus quantity time. You know, when you go have an absolutely fantastic experience. It absolutely does help the relationship. It absolutely does help deepen the relationship. But I think there's just something to be said for hours. And it's an interesting problem to kind of balance the two of those. You know, you do need kind of the pinnacle experiences, but you also just need some amount of time together to build and develop that community at a deeper level. It's just fascinating to me how as technology has changed, how little has changed because humans are still fundamentally humans, you know, yeah. people are people. The funny thing is, I mean, it's just a very personal experience. It's not based on scientific research. You know, I worked in a very large company prior to starting my own firm and I was in the office five days a week and had more interaction in the office with a larger number of people than ever before in my career. Mm -hmm, And it mm -hmm. was also the environment in which I felt the least sense of community and belonging. And Mm. for me, at least, it was because the workspace was not conducive. I found Mm -hmm. myself constantly frustrated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't think our team norms were particularly um, Mm -hmm. well-defined, which led to frequently meetings that just felt frustrating and disappointing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the time together was detrimental to my sense of engagement and my Mm. productivity. So I think it's important to remember that time together doesn't replace Mm -hmm. doing the work to build a healthy culture, Mm -hmm. which is not time together is one part of it, but a culture is defined by how we do things it's defined by the policies we adopt and then it's reinforced every day through the way in which we either positively align Mm -hmm. ourselves Mm -hmm. and reinforce the policies Mm -hmm. or we contradict them. And I think a lot of leaders are missing the mark on that part of building culture and community and therefore creating a high performance environment. And it's not about first and foremost, in-person time, although in-person time can be a catalyst If you've done the other stuff well first. Right. Well, and for the leadership teams, they're most often there not because they build great culture. They're there because they they did the individual contributor task particularly well. (laughs) Which Um, is so disappointing that I've worked at or with only one company, and I think I've had over 100 clients, where 
they had really clearly defined promotion pathways that allowed people mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. a people management and leadership mm-hmm. path mm-hmm. or a technical management technical, right, and leadership right. path. And that worked out exceptionally well for them because they mm-hmm. stopped getting people who moved into people management because they saw that as the only way to gain more you know, ability to contribute value, right. greater compensation, advance mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, you had asked me earlier about the difference between, you know, large company, small company. And this this most recent bit of the conversation here brought back, brought to mind the word hiding, which is when you're in a big company, you can hide. <laughs> so you true. Know, when, when there's a hundred people, when there's a thousand people, you can just quietly disappear. Even when there's 20, 10, 20 people in the conference room, you can disappear. In a startup, when the whole company is 25 people or less, there is no hiding. You know, you are front and center and you have to be engaged or it's very obvious that you're not. There's no cruising. Yeah, I actually think I worked at three companies prior to starting my own business. I actually think the two smaller companies I worked at were much higher pressure, much faster paced Mm -hmm. and frankly demanded a lot more of me exactly for that reason. There just wasn't any space to hide and every person's contribution mattered significantly. And at a large company, it's like just not the case. And unless you have really effective leaders who are getting out of the spreadsheet management and into the like organization to get to know what's happening, they aren't even aware of who's really contributing and who's not. So let me get really controversial here and bring up Elon Musk. So I think that's been one of the interesting things to watch with him as a leader. It's like with Tesla, he wasn't in his office pounding the table saying, get more cars out. He was you know, actually out on the production line with a wrench mm-hmm. trying to fix the problems. Or you talked about the effectiveness of small organizations versus large organizations, You know where he went in, you know, arguably with Twitter, he maybe cut a little bit too deeply and then a whole bunch of people quit. But my sense is that organization is, you know, the individual productivity is significantly higher at Twitter than it used to be. I think that's absolutely true. I always like to ask my guests as we close out our conversation, what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is irrelevant and outdated? So I actually thought about, you know, there's actually two things that are very closely related and contradictory, which I think are outdated. You know, number one is to effectively lead, you all need to be in the office together. You don't. You don't all have to be co-located. It was really interesting for me when the pandemic hit, because you know, as I told you, my staff was dispersed around the world, and it was exactly one person here in Oregon. That was me. So when the pandemic hit, I went from being on a video call in a conference room by myself to being on a video call in my bedroom by myself. You know, it made no difference. I couldn't go around the world and have this, you know, the in-person visits and stuff like that. But we did things to keep the team connected. Like, you know, we did virtual escape rooms together. We played games together. Um, when we would have our staff meetings, we all had our laptops in front of us, even teams that were co-located. So everyone's face was very clear up on the screen. So everybody was seen, everybody was heard because we went around the table, making sure that we went around the screen, went around the boxes, making sure we got everybody's inputs. You know, the company that I'm with now, we have our Tuesday all hands meeting and we always, the first half of the meeting is always pictures. And during the week, people just upload pictures that they took. And it could be, you know, the raccoon in the backyard. It could be their kid graduating from high school. 
but it's just it's just a way of you know it's giving people you know there's an artifact on the screen to look at and it's giving people time to talk about it the other thing which i think is outdated is that you can effectively lead remotely which is the exact opposite of what i just told you because you know, like i told you early in the conversation about like every time i go to shanghai i knew there'd be a problem i just didn't know what because they wouldn't tell me unless i showed up and you know and you said like no Doug, that's worldwide you got to show up if you think about what your deepest relationships in life are, whether they're personal or work, it's probably people who you spend face-to-face time with and just having that breadth of time. So, you know, so how do I reconcile saying both you don't need to be together and you need to be together? And I actually am becoming a stronger advocate for hybrid work. You know, you get the benefits of the shorter work time, the disturbed work time, the autonomy, you know, and the choice and what you do. But going to the office a couple of days a week, you can do the face-to-face relationship building. So I think the whole you got to be in the office thing or the new, you can do it all remotely. I think they're both wrong. I think hybrid's going to be a nice mix for people going forward. Yeah, I think it's working for a lot of organizations. I think I'm a little more uh, bullish on remote work as a viable mm-hmm. option. I do think the less face-to-face time you have, the more important Mm -hmm. it is for the following things to be true. And that is one really effective manager training because in a remote remote work environment or a mostly hybrid environment, Mm -hmm. the primary person that shapes every employee's experience is going to be their manager. And so if your managers don't understand how to effectively people manage, which is not work Mm -hmm. management, it's people mm-hmm. empowerment, then you're going to have a lot of pockets of real yep. high dysfunction. Yep. The second thing mm-hmm. I think is really important is making sure that you're creating time to mm-hmm. have conversations like this, mm-hmm. even if they're over Zoom. I think a big yes. reason yeah. people love office time is because they create space for incidental interaction. And you know, during COVID, I made a point because I'm a very social person to yeah. have at least Three days a week, I would have one to two one-on-ones with people who maybe we didn't work together a lot, but I Mm -hmm. thought their work was interesting. I wanted to learn from them, or it was somebody who I found on teams. I could help mentor on something just to have that type of incidental interaction. And you've got to, in a remote or a predominantly remote work environment, there has to be some structure around that. Mm -hmm. And there has to Mm -hmm. be capacity in the schedule. Absolutely. To allow for more of that incidental relationship building, which I think can be done effectively, but it requires to our earlier theme, intention and more yes, intention. Absolutely. Yeah. You stole one of my closing lines here. No, I think your thing about managers is so right because, you know, the old adage is people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And so to the extent that, you know, you can equip the managers with the training. I mean, see for me, because I had for so many years, managed people remotely when the pandemic hit, it was transparent because I, you know, I had five, seven years of managing people remotely. So it's like, whatever, it's just, you know, new day, different place for the video call. But it was just, so it's just fascinating with me for me to see so many people struggle with remote management because they had absolutely zero training, zero experience. And it was also just exposed how little training material was out there. And I think there is still a dearth of training material. You know, some companies have tried to deal with it by putting in, you know, productivity management software where they manage your keystrokes and stuff. And it's it's all just blown up in people's faces. So yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you. 
that that training on how to effectively do remote management is key. I also totally agree with you about the need for intentionality. I think, you know, in the old days, the working hypothesis, the working theory for why you should be in the office is so you can have those casual water cooler collisions. But now that there's not a water cooler that we gather around, I think you're totally right. It doesn't need to be intentional. You need to drop it on your calendar. So we're aligned. Yeah. So I think really good managers have to be able to hold space for people to let go, be Mm -hmm. vulnerable, share Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. they feel cared for and like they Mm -hmm. belong in a workplace. And that is a skill in itself that requires a fair amount of practice and learning and support to develop. And Mm -hmm. I think it can't be overstated in today's workplace, the importance of it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think one of the really great things that's come out of the pandemic is the, as I say, the acceptance of kids and dogs in the workplace. But that it's, you know, because before there was this, you know, you tried not to take, you know, if you had to make a personal call, you went into the conference room because mm-hmm. you didn't want to be, you know, caught doing personal stuff in the middle of the workplace. You know, and we're now in a situation where in the middle of this big, deep discussion, some three-year-old comes and climbs up on someone's lap or the cat walks across the screen. and at first, people are like, you know, like, go away, go away in a business. And now it's to the point where people, I think, it's just like, oh, how cute. And, and the conversation like, What's their and, name? Yeah, what's their <laughs> yeah. name? You know, hi, how you doing? What's for dinner? Yeah, you know, or it's like, oh, what a cute cat. I and mean, what's the breed? What's her name? Yeah. It, is, it has allowed people to be people to bring more of their whole selves to work because you don't have to kind of put all the work stuff into, you know, push it out. You know, it's just much more integrated and realizing that people are whole people and they're bringing all this other stuff in with them that, you know, maybe what's going on at work, maybe this the way this person's reacting to this is because of what's going on with their three-year-old at home or sick dog. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. We need to allow space and give training for managers so that they can be more human and treat their people more humanely. And I think that is one good thing that's come out of the pandemic is there's just a lot more empathy and sympathy for what's going on with people than there used to be. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This was a true pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me on this special part two of Empowered Leadership. You can find Doug on LinkedIn. His information is in the show notes. As always, thank you for joining and have a lovely day. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.